Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing treatment of hypertension. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. All guidelines are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, welcome back to Take Orally. Uh, Jamie Thomas is here once again, uh, teacher fellow in emergency medicine. Uh, and I'm delighted to welcome back ED pharmacist uh, Canalga Hill. Good Hello. morning, Dr. Thomas. Nice to be here again. Fantastic. Thank you for coming back. We didn't put you off last time. Um, and so um, in, this, uh, in these uh, podcasts, we're going to start uh, to cover more of the curriculum here at Nottingham University Hospitals. Um, finally, your medical students here um, also have to do a, an exam at the end of the year in therapeutics. And so that's why I've asked uh, my esteemed uh, pharmacist colleague to come join me. Uh, so in this um, first podcast on therapeutics, we're going to be looking at uh, hypertension or hypertension. anti-hypertension treatment canal. Um, mercifully, not something I have to do a lot of in the emergency department, but very important, especially in primary care and for... Absolutely. I mean, like in terms of initiating um, therapies for hypertension, it's, it's an important long-term intervention to make it something. There's a lot of evidence to say if you get blood pressure under control, you can reduce the risk of lots of different potential morbidities. Um, obviously in the ED, we're not going to necessarily initiate this a lot, but we do need to be very mindful. Um, we, we deal with a lot of patients that come in on a lot of these therapies, um, and we have to be quite mindful of um, the potential for the adverse effects, um, whether these things are still suitable. Quite often um, you, pay, you can have patients on these drugs for extremely long lengths of time. Um, and the risk benefits of when they were started might not always be the same when they come and attend an ED. So um, in terms of initiating, it's um, more of a primary care sort of area, but being mindful of the, the adverse effects and um, patients' tolerability of these things is, is really important to, to be mindful of in terms of reviewing it as an ongoing therapy. So the guidelines we're going to be looking at here are, are the NICE guidelines, uh, CG127. Uh, which is on um, hypertension in adults uh, and they've got a very nice algorithm um, based primarily on, on, on the age and, and the race of the, of the patient. Absolutely. Um, so we're not going to go too much into the diagnosis of hypertension here, we're looking more at the treatment. Um, so step one treatment, um, if we have a patient who's aged under um, 55 um, it mentions starting um, an ACE inhibitor, an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor, or a low-cost angiotensin II receptor blocker. That's right, yeah. So, so it's important to know the, the distinction here. So um, th- there's obviously two first lines, which is for the older patient over 55, the one under 55. Um, so for your patient that's under 55, they've got a lot of renin flying around in their system, which the older person... Uh, or the Afro-Caribbean descent people won't necessarily have. So ACE inhibitors are usually going to be always your first line. Um, ACE inhibitors, see in terms of their mechanism of action, they work on ACE, which is um, the conversion from angiotensinogen, which is facilitated by renin to give you angiotensin 1. Then the, the enzyme ACE, which converts to angiotensin 2, which is your which is gonna give you your hypertensive effects. So by blocking that ACE enzyme, we're blocking the, some, a part of the renin angiodentin system that is gonna increase blood pressure. So we're sort of fooling the body a little bit. Um, the classic classic sort of uh, gold standard ACE inhibitor we use is Ramipril. Mm. These are all pril drugs. 
Um, there's not really a great deal of difference between the different ones. If you look at our formulary here in Nottingham, it, it pretty much says to use the one that's the lowest acquisition cost. Um, they're all pretty similar in terms of their their profile. Um, Bramapril, Lisinopril, Trandolapril, lots of different types. Um, the only exception is a drug called Captopril, which is the oldest one, which we use twice a day, and it's, it's a bit old-fashioned, which we don't use much anymore. Um, quite a potent drug, particularly when you start taking it. They can have um, really potent effects. So if you are starting at a patient, we usually say um, we recommend to start taking it at night time, um, just usually to avoid any postural drops, which might happen over the first week. Um, so at least people, when they when they take the tablet, they take it in the morning, they're not going to be active. And if that is a side effect, it doesn't become too much of a problem for them. Um, so important usually to counsel your patients to start taking it at night time um, and to know what to expect in terms of a postural drop to safety net them. Um, classic side effect of the ACE inhibitor, which I'm sure everybody's taught in medical school, I hope it should be, <laughs> is, is the, what we call the ACE cough. Um, so ACE inhibitors are, are associated with a classic dry cough, um, non-productive cough. Um, this is because when we spoke earlier about ACE, uh, the enzyme, uh, it blocks the conversion to angi angiotensin 2. Uh, but that enzyme is also responsible for a breakdown of something called bradykinin, um, which is a peptide in, in the body. Um, that is a, a tussive type um, type product, so it actually causes a causes a dry cough. Mm. Um, usually, ACE would break that down mm. into some inactive compounds. Um, if you're blocking ACE, it's not going to get broken down, and you get tussive effects, so you get this cough. Um, that is classically a reason that we'd switch over to the, the ARBs, so moving on to the, the ARBs. Mm -hmm. um, so those don't work on ACE, they work on the receptor site of angiotensin 2. Um, so you get a very similar effect in terms of their clinical profile. Um, so they're, they're very similar in terms of what they do. But because they don't work on the ACE enzyme, um, you shouldn't get that cough. Um, the counseling points will be very similar. Um, and when we talk about the, the ARBs, we're talking about what we call the SARTANs. Um, so like candesartan, yeah, low sartan, yeah. low sartan, candesartan, um, herbosartan. There's lots and lots of different ones. Again, no real clinical difference between them. Um, lumping the ACE inhibitors and the ARBs together, there's a few things that you have to keep an eye out for, um, which is one of them being renal dysfunction. So these are nephrotoxic drugs. Um, you're going to potentially drop some of the blood flow to the kidneys. So you can get a, a decline in renal function. Mm. So when starting them, it's really important that we get a baseline renal function. Uh, and we're Especially if your patient's been hypertensive and the kidneys are used to that yeah, higher absolutely, blood pressure. Yeah. If you, yeah. So you're dropping that, so it, it's quite common to get a creatinine increase in, um, in patients that we start these drugs on. Um, so we're getting a baseline renal function, and then after a week or two, we'd probably repeat that to make sure there's no, nothing suspicious going on with the, the kidneys. Mm. Um, and equally, um, there's effects on potassium for various mechanisms, um, but both these drugs can potentially cause hyperkalemia, so they raise potassium levels in the blood, and that's again something that we do ongoing monitoring for, um, so something that we test periodically for. So if you were starting this in practice, or starting in hospital, you would be asking you, you, the GP yeah. of the patient to keep che checking yeah. these up once you've started it? We'd have our baseline bloods, which is important, but it's something that uh, in primary care we need to be monitoring regularly uh, and there's there's guidance about specifically how how often you'll you'll do that and I suppose also if you are um, 
you, clocking this patient in in A and E, and and they've come in with AKI acute kidney um, injury. If you can spot these drugs as as nephrotoxic drugs, potential candidates, absolutely, um, yeah. that's important to to stop in A and E. Absolutely. So there's there's a complete different risk benefit ratio, and whenever we prescribe any drug, we we look at the risk benefit. Um, if it's a patient that's acutely unwell, potentially septic and, and hypotensive with an acute kidney injury, um, we need to be mindful that it's a nephrotoxic drug and, and mm. to be holding it or even stopping it for a period of time. Sure. So that's for our uh, patients under um, 55, our non-Afro-Caribbean descent patients. What about patients who are 55 or over or of Afro-Caribbean descent? Sure. So these, so they're, they're a different group. And as I mentioned before, um, because this is all based on renin, um, which is the driving force for, for angiotensinogen to be created, to be converted to angiotensin 1. Um, the older patient or the Afro-Caribbean patient doesn't have as much of that circulating and therefore the ACE inhibitor is slightly less effective in that patient profile. So as a result, I think the, uh, the guidance says we can, you've got a choice of two other drugs, which I'm sure you can... So yeah, so... Um as nice states, um, it's step one treatment for these patients is a, a calcium channel blocker, or uh, to offer a, a thiazide like diuretic. Absolutely. So two two options. Um, nice give you give you the um, give you the option of which one to use. Um, generally speaking, I think you'd find that the calcium channel blocker is is generally preferred in clinical practice. But that's not to say that um, a, a thiazide like would be would be inappropriate. Um, so if we start off with the calcium channel blockers, these are actually now in the UK the most used antihypertensive agent. Okay. Um, so they've, I think they've recently just overtaken the ACE inhibitors. So lots of people are taking calcium channel blockers. Um, really interesting group of drugs because there's quite a lot of clinical differences between the different types. Um, most, most of the drugs that will initiate for hypertension, calcium channel blocker wise, would be um, what we call the dihydropyrimidine calcium mm. channel blockers. So these are the drugs that end in peen. So amlodipine, nifedipine, um, lurconidipine, all these sort of drugs. Um, and there's an important distinction to, to make between the calcium channel blockers. So the, the dihydropyrimidine are the preferred ones for hypertension. Um, they act more, their, their mechanism of action works on peripheral smooth muscle. So what you're effectively getting is, um, is a re- relaxation of smooth, smooth muscle in peripheral tissue. Um, which is going to lower the blood pressure. Mm. Um, now, there's there's calcium channels, obviously, centrally in the heart, um, and these dihydropyrimidine calcium channel blockers, amlodipines, have very little effect directly on the heart, um, which is important um, because the effect there can have effects on um, ionotropic and chronotropic effects. Um, so, generally speaking, amlodipine um, and the dihydropyrimidines don't have any particular effect on the heart. Sure. Um, so, you can use them quite safely in that effect. There is another class of calcium channel blockers which we don't use as often in hypertension. Um, so, generally, they're not, not favoured in hypertension, which are the non dihydropyrimidines, and these cover the two classic agents being verapamil and diltiazem. Um, so, still calcium channel blockers, they have less peripheral action. Um, so they're generally causing less um, drops in blood pressure mm. and having more central cardiac function. Um, so they are rate limiting. Mm. So they'll, they'll act on the action potentials 
from the sinoatrial node through to the AV node and, and slow down the rate of the heart. Which is why we give uh, diltiazem in some patients with atrial fibrillation here in Absolutely. our department. Yeah, diltiazem, verapamil, we're, we're, we will usually reserve them more for rate control in, in AF and things like that. Um, in terms of the, so I won't talk too much about verapamil and diltiazem because they're, they're not used that often in hypertension. Um, in terms of the, the dihydropyrimidine, so the amlodipines and its brothers, um, you're going to get a similar um, postural, potential postural drops um, as you would with the ACE inhibitors. All of these agents drop blood pressure, that's what they do. Um, so when we're prescribing them, potentially again, we can ask patients to start taking at night time, um, which will protect them from, if they're doing any activity from their postural drops. Um, so we might say start in start at night time. Mm. Um, the classic effects of the calcium channel blocker um, is potentially swelling of the ankles. So peripheral edema um, is a potential side effect. Now, usually with the with the amlodipines and the dihydropyrimidines, this is a very relatively rare side effect. They don't have too much central activity. Um, so they won't cause too much of that, but there is peripheral vasodilation, so you are going to potentially get peripheral edema. Um, this, in terms of counselling a patient about this, it's something for them to be mi mindful of. Um, simple steps as, as getting up and getting active, um, raising limbs and things like that can minimise it till the body gets used to the drug to a certain extent. Um, if it's getting to the point where it's really affecting them, then we might need to think of something else, and that's where the, the thiazide potentially comes in. Um, they can potentially cause flushing, again, because of the peripheral vas vasodilation, so people can feel flushed um, in their face and their chest and that sort of thing. Um, and they can very they can occasionally cause a rash and an itch as well, which mm. has sometimes been, uh, been associated with them as well. Um, but generally, they're quite well tolerated, and that's why most of the time we, we use a lot of it now. Okay. That um, mention of a rash, just uh, to go back to the, the ACE inhibitors, reminds me of, of a study we did here in... Um, ACE inhibitor um, related um, angioedema. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is a phenomenon that's rare, but mm -hmm. can, um, patients on ACE inhibitors, and they can, have been, they can have been on ACE inhibitors for a long time. Yes. Spontaneously starting with angioedema. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, again another classic, you say it a classic side effect, but it is a relatively rare side effect. Um, and it can, it can, as you quite rightly say, happen at any point. So somebody that's on an ACE inhibitor. For 20 years could all of a sudden have um, come in with a swollen tongue mm. um, with no particular reason why uh, and it is potentially associated with it. I don't actually know the full mechanism behind it immunologically, <laughs> that's, that's probably asking a bit much but that is something to be mindful of if you find somebody is on um, an ACE inhibitor and there's an unexplained angioedema reaction, that's mm. something to, to put in your differential. Mm. Um, okay, so that's our, our calcium channel blockers. Um, so Nice also mentioned thiazide-like diuretics. Sure. Yeah. So what are we thinking there? So the thiazides are an interesting one. So um, a time ago, they were actually first line, um, first line for, for everybody, I think, for quite a long time. They've changed that relatively recently. Um, so when we talk about the thiazides, um, there are the pure thiazide diuretics. Um, so these are drugs. The most common one is bendroflumathiazide. Um, which which patients of, always struggle to say. Yes, it's, it's not an easy thing, yeah, <laughs> bendroflumathiazide or bendroflumathiazide. <laughs> bendroflumathiazide uh, is the correct name of it. Now, you, you'll potentially see a lot of patients still on this um, historically from back when, back when it was a first-line agent. Mm. Um, some other examples are hydrochlorothiazide um, and I think there's cyclopentathiazide. There's a few different ones. Um, 
Now, generally speaking, these pure thiazides have gone a little bit out of fashion. Um, you can still use them, but the, if you look very carefully at this nice criteria, it will actually ask you to use a thiazide-like diuretic. Mm. Um, now, the thiazide-likes have effectively got the same mechanism of action, so they inhibit sodium reabsorption in the kidney, and therefore they push water off you, quite simply. Um, the thiazide likes, uh, the two most common ones are indapamide and chlortalidione. Um, indapamide probably being the one that we use more of. Mm. Um, metolazone is also another thiazide like. Um, we don't use that generally in hypertension. It's more reserved for sort of nasty heart failure um, for, di for its diuresis effects. Um, now, the difference between the thiazides and the thiazides like um, is to do mainly with their glucose metabolism. Okay. So we now prefer indapamide and chlortalidione because they don't have any particular effects on glucose metabolism, whereas there has been association with benzoflumothiazide with hyperglycemia and a, and a risk of diabetes over time. This effect is not evident or less evident, I'm not 100% sure, with, uh, with indapamide, uh, which is the, the commercially available, the readily commercially available product. Um, chlortalidione, if, um, I think that is actually potentially the first line option. If you look at the evidence, from what I understand, chlortalidione's actually got potential effects on cholesterol inhibition, and even I think it's been postulated to have antiplatelet effects. So I think outcomes are actually best with that. The okay. problem is it's not a readily available drug, it's difficult to get hold of, um, and I think as a result, generally we use, we use indapamide if that's gonna be our agent of choice. Um, it is a diuretic. So similar to the ACE inhibitors, um, it can potentially be nephrotoxic. Mm. Um, so if you've got your patient with an acute kidney injury, um, you will need to think about holding it for a, for a period of time. Your dehydrated patient, you obviously don't want to be pushing further fluid off them. Um, again, a potentially quite potent hypotensive agent. So this is one we don't necessarily say to start taking at night time because obviously the classic effect that this is going to cause is going to be urinary frequency. Sure. So your patient will often quite classically come and say, I'm peeing a lot more than I used to. Is this correct? And obviously it is a natural effect of the drug. And it's yeah. something to, to warn your patient about um, because within about two or three hours of taking the tablet, they're going to get potentially quite profound diuresis, um, meaning they're going to go to the toilet more often. And something to think about with lifestyle factors, if you've got a patient who's not very mobile, mm. Uh, and you're going to make them need to get up a lot to go to the toilet. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's something you have to consider, and it's something again in the in the risk benefit of starting it. Um, generally, patients are happy taking that as long as you warn them and you're telling them about what to expect. Um, an interesting one is, quite classically, patients get prescribed um, these thiazide diuretics, and then they get two weeks later get diagnosed with a UTI. Because they're going to the toilet. Because they're going to the toilet. Urinary frequency, even though it's got nothing to do with it. So that's a, a classic <laughs> pitfall there. Oh um, obviously, being a diuretic, it's, um, it's going to potentially drop electrolytes. So hypokalemia and hyponatremia are going to be potential side effects. So similar to the ACE inhibitors, baseline bloods and um, continuing monitoring of urea and electrolytes sure. are important in this case. Sure. Particularly as your patient is getting older and going to mm. be on this for quite a while. Um, the other, the other main effect to think about with, with diuretics is um, patient's fluid intake. So you can potentially say to a patient, the more, the more you're drinking, the more you're, this is gonna diarrhea off you. So that's something to, to consider in this patient profile. A Couple of other interesting things about the, the, 
thiazides is they will potentially increase calcium in the way that they um, in the way that they work on the kidney. So hypercalcemia can be a problem um, with, with the thiazides and the thiazide likes. And also, you have to be very careful in patients with gout because they can precipitate gout because mm. um, they'll increase your uric acid retention. Um, so in a patient with gout, you might have to think twice about putting them on a, on a thiazide uh, for more risk benefit. Mm. There's so much to know. <laughs> okay, so that's pretty much our step one treatment as per the NICE guidelines. Uh, so then NICE mentioned for step two. Um, so obviously they talk about... Um, trying to optimise um, the, um, the doses of, of the step one treatment. They talk about lifestyle interventions, etc. you know, exercise, diet, uh, stress, etc. cetera. Uh, but if that's not working, it, moving on to step two, um, they mention a, a calcium channel blocker in combination with either an, an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. That's right. So this is sort of when, when you get to step two, um, there's various combinations you can use. So usually it's it's going to be the mainstay of the ACE inhibitor. Mm. So you, if you are over 55, this is when you'd add the ACE inhibitor to that first line therapy, whether it be the diuretic or the calcium channel blocker. Yeah. Um, that it would it would be governed by what you were started on initially, uh, and it's combination therapy. Now, obviously, giving two agents together, you're going to potentiate the effects of the hypotension. So we, we've talked about the particular side effects here. Um, a, a very potential dangerous combination is the ACE inhibitor with the diuretic because of the because of the nephrotoxic effects. So that's going to be a patient profile that would probably need a little bit more monitoring. Um, an important thing to note is you need to optimize the therapies therapies at step one before you move to step two. So uh, an example of this would be starting a patient on an ACE inhibitor, um, ramipril for example, um, putting them on a standard dose which is two point five milligrams. Um, then after a couple of months noting that the blood pressure hasn't come down enough um, in terms of the targets that NICE governs and so you decide to go to step two. That's mm. not the correct way of going about it. We need to think about optimising the dose to the, the highest tolerated dose before we move to the next step um, which is something that's quite easily forgotten about but that's a really important thing. It's good for patients, they prefer to take one drug over two drugs uh, and the side effect profile and, and managing that patient's a lot easier if you do that. Sure. So then we've started on to step two. We're using an ACE inhibitor plus a calcium chamber, ACE inhibitor plus a diuretic. We're still not controlling our patient's blood pressure. We're then, we're making sure, again, our patient's taking them at the right dose. We're making sure that they're compliant as well. That is important. Mm -hmm. um, step three then, as per NICE guidelines, is to use a combination of all three. Sure, all of the above um, at this point, which again makes logical sense. These, these are the three drug types that have got the highest evidence base. Um, it's effectively in terms of monitoring and, and keeping an eye on things, it's what we've said before. So making sure they've got the correctly optimized doses before we move to this step. Because um, once you're putting someone on three drugs that act on different parts of the, um, the, the renin-angiotensin system, um, you're going to increase their risk of side effects and potentially increase their risk of having postural drops and things like this. So making the decisions is a, is something to think about when you when you speak to the patient um, and making sure we're getting routine bloods and keeping a very close eye on these patients is, is quite important. Um, the side effects, as we said, we, we've said it before, 
um, and you will potentially increase the risk of some of these effects. Um, an ACE plus a diuretic is the, the classic combination that is going to potentially cause you renal problems mm. and, and give people give people issues. So there's there's something to be said as well about your older, frailer patient. Um, you do potentially see quite a few of these people on these three drugs together. Sure. Um, one has to think um, for an older patient, always go back to the risk benefit of um, how tight do you need to control this blood pressure. Um, weigh the risk of the adverse effects and the effect on that patient's day-to-day life against the risk of them having uh, a, a cardiac or a cardiovascular complication down the line. Um, it's not always a very straightforward decision to move up these rungs. Um, sometimes a suboptimal treatment um, in terms of the guideline might be the best thing for that patient. So what, what I'd say is when you're moving into these further steps, um, you treat the patient rather mm. than treating the, the algorithm itself. And then once, we're, once we've got the, the combinations of the step three of the ACE inhibitor, the calcium channel blocker and the, and the thiazide, that's when we're sort of moving into more specialist territory. Yeah. Um, the evidence base um, is, is difficult at step four. Um, so that's when we're adding in potentially a loop diuretic to potentiate the effects of the, of the thiazide. And this is where you're very much basing that decision on um, a case-by-case basis. Yeah. So a, a good example might be um, a patient on the three, um, the ACE, the calcium channel blocker, and the, and the thiazide. Um, that is suffering from peripheral edema but is still hypertensive. Now, a good choice um, of adding something for to to improve their control might be to add a small dose of a loop diuretic to potentiate the diuresis, knowing the potential effect on the um, on the renal function and the electrolytes and things like that. Um, for a patient that is prone to getting postural drops. Um, that an alpha blocker is recommended as a potential option. Um, they're potentially, as- anecdotally, they're potentially associated with worse postural drops. Mm. Um, so you have to be careful prescribing those in your, your older patients. Um, something to keep a very close eye on with that is your older male patient is often started on tamsulosin for their um, for their, for their benign post. Um, Prostatic hypertrophy, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly, couldn't say it myself. Um, <laughs> so you have to consider that that patient is effectively alpha-blocked alongside yeah. the rest of their, their hypertension treatment. And we have seen a few cases where we've got patients on tamsulosin as an alpha-blocker and then put on a different alpha-blocker at the same time um, to control their, their blood pressure. Mm. Um, and when we talk about the alpha-blockers, we talk about the what we call the zosin drugs, so tamsulosin, doxazosin, terazosin, prazosin. Um, they're reserved for much lower, uh, they're much lower down the line in terms of, of using them. Um, I won't go too much into them. Um, then the last option obviously being the old fashioned beta blocker, which mm-hmm. um, used to be in the guidelines for, for hypertension further yeah. up. Um, they've been removed now because they are symp- sympathetic nervous system blockers. Um, they've potentially got diabet- diabetogenic properties similar to the thiazides, there's some evidence to say that. Um, and now they, they're considered a supplement to, sure. to other things for, for people that have a high sympathetic drive um, for their hypertension. Um, they're probably going to be reserved more for your patients with AF that might have hypertension. Um, and you mm. can, you're sort of treating two birds with one stone in that case. Mm. Um, beta blocker wise, lots of potential side effects associated with them. Um, I mean, they're, they're rate limiting, can potentially have a very, a very 
potent hypotensive effect. There's problems in regards to patients with respiratory disease, um, bronchoconstriction, things like that. Um, and then there's there's peripheral um, peripheral effects, so people get cold, cold hands, cold feet. Um, and so there's problems with peripheral vascular disease and that sort of thing. Um, but we won't talk too much about beta blockers because they're not going to be very high up yeah. in your your thought processes for pure essential hypertension. Yeah, so NICE in particular, and they mentioned under step one treatment, they say uh, beta blockers not preferred for hypertension, uh, however, may be considered in younger people, so sure. younger people yep. presenting hypertension, um, particularly those with an intolerance or, an, or a contraindication to ACE inhibitors or angiotensin and two uh, receptor antagonists, or women of childbearing potential. Sure, not yep. there's, a, there's a lot of evidence for beta blockers in that, that group. Um, or people with evidence of increased sympathetic drive. And I yep. certainly see people where anxiety is related yep. as well to the hypertension younger people Absolutely. who put on a beta block in those cases. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, but as you said, otherwise not really a role there. That's right. Uh, and you mentioned further diuretic therapy. Um, NICE in particular mentioned low dose spironolactone. Yeah, it could be a potential option, that's right. Um, but spironolactone being a potassium sparing diuretic. Yeah. Um, so you, you'll hold on to your potassium with that. You'll get potentiated effects between the spironolactone and the, and the thiazide, but that, that's a potential option of a diuretic, or furosemide is your other option. Mm-hmm. Um, sp- spironolactone, the key thing again is, is the potassium with that one, is keeping a close eye on, their, um, on yeah. their potassium levels. They in particular mention only if the potassium level is um, 4.5 millimoles or lower, so not somebody at risk of going into hypercapnia if you're starting yeah. a potassium sparing agent like that. Absolutely. Excellent. And like you said at this point, I mean, if certainly this is beyond accident and emergency territory, sure. it, this is the realm of a specialist yeah. cardiologist with a sub interest in, in you know, absolutely disease, yeah. in, in um, medication refractory hypertension, etc. Yeah, you would, I mean, you would expect a, um, a, a general practitioner to be happy in even potentially going up to step three, uh, which is the ACE, the calcium channel blocker and the diuretic. Um, Once you're going up to step four and beyond, um, you'd be looking to think, is there an underlying reason that this person has got this level of hypertension? Yeah. Um, And potentially referring them to a a specialist at that point. Um, There are some weird and wonderful drugs that you can use much further down the line. Um, Drugs like moxonidine, hydralazine, these are for people that have particular particular underlying problems that's that's driving their hypertension. Um, we won't talk too much about them, um, but they're reserved for very particular patients. People, for example, people with renal disease, potentially we can use moxonidine for them. Um, people with problems with their sympathetic system, we can use clonidine for them. Um, we can even use potentially nitrates for people that um, have got cardiac problems. So there's there's various different options at that point, but once once you're getting from step four, you're really personalising that treatment to the patient, and, and mm. the algorithm becomes a lot more difficult to use. Mm-hmm. No, I mean it's just uh, I think I think the main thing is as, as I said before, um, there's it's it's always a very it's a it's a danger with these kind of algorithm based um, um, treatments is is to treat the is to use the algorithm rather than treat the patient. Um, Considering that when you're going to prescribe a drug for, for this patient, they could be taking it for the rest of their life. Yeah. Um, and the risk benefit of. Um, Which will be longer because you're treating their hypertension. Absolutely, yeah. They, sh- they should live longer if they're taking it properly. Um, but consider um, when you start a hypertension treatment, um, say an ACE inhibitor for a patient that's 50 years old, yeah. um, there's, there's a lot to be gained from doing that. Um, 
you have to think very carefully that you see that same patient 30 years later when they're 80 years old and having problems with postural drops and having deteriorating renal function and things mm. like that um, is always review your decision and mm. um, include the patient in terms of what they what the benefit they're getting out of it is. Mm. Um, should also mention that there's there's the adjuncts are really important so lifestyle measures salt intake um, exercise these these are all very high evidence based and low cost measures to be able to get people's hypertension under control um, and there is a there's another nice guideline which talks about lipid modification and primary prevention um, hypertension is quite a big factor for potentially patients qualifying for a statin if they want to um, so that might be another intervention that you can discuss with your patient and give them the option for sure excellent uh, well thank you very much Kamal pleasure that's pleasure. Uh, hypertension treatment box ticked thank mm-hmm. you very much Thank you for listening. That was the Treating Hypertension Take Orally podcast. For more information, you can visit www.takeorally.com. We can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. For more information on research and education opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, don't forget to check out NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.